0: Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Why do discussions about race in the United States always seem to widen the gap between neighbors? How do our assumptions about race cripple our ability to recognize oppression in unfamiliar places? Is racism the main issue, or is it symptomatic of a deeper human dysfunction? In the first episode of a four-part series, Richard and I examined the problem of identity in the book of Ruth, as is to be expected. The Bible's wisdom on this subject will embarrass folks on both sides of the aisle. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And
1: this is Dr. Richard Benton.
0: And you are listening to episode 89 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have talked again and again on this show about the problem with assuming that the New Testament says something new. It doesn't. The New Testament simply takes something old and represents it to a broader audience.
1: Knowledge of the Bible and knowledge of the biblical text is enough to disabuse this notion. People make an assumption that Jesus is here to bring peace, so that when Jesus talks about a sword, people get into a tizzy because it doesn't jive. It's necessary to really look at the text, take the text seriously, and take the text as primary. And before one gets in a tizzy about the Bible disagreeing with you, Get into a tizzy about you disagreeing with the bible if we begin with that presupposition i think we're going to be in much safer shape
0: this idea that there has been a progression in human civilization in terms of our humanity and our wisdom over time and improvement is a false assumption it's a broken idea one might look at for example galatians and say well paul talked about circumcision but now we understand that it's about racism but just last week there was a black candidate who's part of the public discussion about race and culture and all of the different topics that impact the election season. We had a black candidate saying that a Muslim shouldn't be eligible to become president of the United States. So there's something dysfunctional about modern discussions of race. And our way of talking about race in the United States is not an enhancement of human wisdom. You could argue actually that it's the decay of wisdom because even before Paul, there were numerous texts in the Old Testament that didn't deal just with questions of race, but dealt primarily and fundamentally with the question of identity, the problem of identity which encompasses race, it encompasses behavioral function, it encompasses every kind of othering that human beings do that proves to
1: be destructive. Ever since Abraham is welcomed with hospitality by the Hittites, we have this problem of identity because identity usually lines up this group versus that group with the good group and the bad group. And when Abraham is working with this Hittite, the Hittite is more than generous to Abraham in offering him land.
0: It's really important to understand the deficiencies in modern ideology. I was fortunate yesterday to have lunch with a Palestinian intellectual from Bethlehem, and he was sharing with me an observation made by a famous poet, Mahmoud Darwish, that dialogues are problematic, that what Palestinians should be engaged in is not dialogue with the Israelis, but neighboring with the Israelis. Because when you have a dialogue with the Israelis, you have two identities facing off against each other. Everybody wants to do dialogues all the time. They're very impressed with this concept from Greek philosophy. But the Semitic tradition focuses on neighboring. Because when you neighbor someone, you actually behave correctly towards them. You take an interest in them and you engage with them on a familiar level, and identity no longer functions in that setting or neighboring should at least trump identity. It's easy to have an opinion about a Jewish person or a Palestinian person. It's much harder, as everyone knows, when you actually have a personal encounter with the other. You're forced to actually deal with the data of the other versus your platonic ideal of the other. All of this, though, is not something that's being discovered by modern ideology. It's something that we received from our ancient wisdom traditions that we constantly forget and constantly need to be reminded of. And today we wanted to talk about the book of Ruth because so much of what the New Testament is
1: depends so heavily on the scandal of Ruth. The problem in Ruth is that we have this Moabitess and the Moabites are an historical enemy of the Israelites. And so we have a Moabite who's the best person in the whole story who is willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of not her people, but for another people. And when you mentioned this idea of neighboring, this is something that I have blogged about and how one has to learn how to become good neighbors with people, how one does have to open themselves up to others and make themselves vulnerable in order to learn and in order to become close to people in order to understand the people around them. This is what Ruth is doing herself. So the problem that the book of Ruth is confronting is this idea of the good Israelite and the bad Gentile because we're confronted with this person who is the good Moabitess who sacrifices herself for Israel and who is willing to give up everything for the sake of not only Israel but also for helping a widow which we should hear that with good biblical ears to understand that this is the top or maybe even the main ethical call, which is to help the orphans and the widows, she is dealing with a widow and is willing to give up her livelihood in order to help out this widow. So the question of identity is put in tension by this book. Is it possible for the Gentile to be good? Is it possible for the Gentile to be better than us, better than the Israelites? What about the children of this good Moabitess. Does that person count as good based on the merits of her mother?
0: What makes a person an Israelite? Is it their bloodline?
1: Is it their keeping of religious customs? Or is it their behavior? Because this person is a Moabitess, she's not educated in Torah. So it can't even be out of obedience to the Lord's law the Lord's teaching because she can't have heard it. She hasn't even been in the the land. Well, and this is the
0: deeper point I'm making about race in the United States. We've settled on categories of victims to such an extent that we can't see when a black man is being racist. We can't see when a Jewish person is being oppressive. We can't. The litmus test of our time, the test of whether or not someone really cares about race, is how they interpret the Middle East, how they interpret Islam, because so many people who are hung up with issues of gender, race, or color, are completely blind or at least ambivalent about the persecution of all types of different kinds of people, especially when the victimization of another group calls into question their ontological understanding of traditional categories of victim In the United States.
1: This is constantly changing I think we need to be thinking about that father because we for example have friends from Spain and they moved to this country and in Spain people from Latin America tend to be of a lower socioeconomic class. When our friends moved here to the United States they became close friends with a lot of Latinos on equal terms because of language and As a result, the distinction between the socioeconomic classes that were in Spain then changed once they came to the U.S. Ontologically, nobody changed. Mexicans were from Mexico and Spaniards were from Spain. But once you move from Spain to here, the context changes everything. It's how does it function.
0: A progressive insisting that, no, this category is a victim, and a conservative reacting to that saying, no, we're also victims too, Both the progressive and the conservative in that scenario sound ignorant to my scriptural ears. It's like trying to insist that a stove is hot. No, stoves are hot. Well, my stove is cold, but my stove is hot. You're locked into a kind of self-imposed blindness or ignorance because you're just making an assumption about how something functions and assuming it always functions that way, and it's not true. And until we learn to start thinking in the functional category of other instead of the ontological category of our victim du jour we're not only going to fail at trying to address the problem of racism we're going to create new problems because every ideology is a defensive reaction against another ideology so it's very important that we set aside western progressivism and look deep into our biblical roots to understand how we can address these modern Mm -hmm. problems and i think the book of ruth is a great
1: starting point. Right. The book of Ruth is understood in oversimplified terms. as simply the description of a virtuous woman, and therefore women in our culture should imitate the virtue of this woman. And I think what you're saying, Father, and what we're discussing brings it to a much deeper level that this has to do with insider and outsider and what it is to be obedient and what it means to be a correct person. Now it came about in the days when
0: the judges governed, That there was a famine in the land and i think it's important here right off the bat it's not in the day of the king it is in the period of time when the people of judah are governed under the authority of the torah shepherded by judges who interpret god's instruction and who make sure that god's instruction is followed and applied in the land there's no king this is before david's line So it was in that period that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah, that's my family's hometown, I'm very proud of that, a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. So anyone reading this is going to say, this is before David, yet we're talking about the city of David and Judah, right? Because the person reading this, I mean, I know that people like to assume that these texts were fragments written at different periods and different times, we've said over and over again that someone reading this is reading it in context of the whole canon so they know that bethlehem is the city of david even though this predates david in the narrative arc of the Bible. So
1: someone from the city of David went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and two sons. It starts off in Bethlehem and immediately moves outside of the land. This begins outside of the land of Israel in the land of the enemies of Israel. So
0: they're leaving the city of David going outside and the first name you hear is very striking with that observation in mind. The name of the man was Elimelech which means God is my king. So It's the time of the judges. You start in the city of David and you leave the city of David and go outside to the land of the Moabites. And the name of the man who left is God is my king, meaning I don't need David, I don't need the city, I don't need Judah. It's a pattern that appears again and again. It undermines what has become in modern ideology, the concept of nationalism or nation. Already in the ancient world, you have the book of Ruth, undermining the concept of nation and king. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And Naomi could be from Naaman in Hebrew, which is related to the word grace, Naamat, which could mean pleasant or graceful. And the names of his two sons contrast and conflict with these names. So the first one was Mahlon, which implies sickness or suffering. The name of his second child, his second son was Kilian which could mean failing or annihilation. Both were Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then God is my king, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, which again could imply gloom or darkness and the name of the other Ruth now the name Ruth is interesting so so far we've had names that imply destruction sickness suffering aside from the names of the parents We're not doing so well with the children who were born in exile in the
1: land of the Moabites. But then there's this name Ruth. What's going on with the name Ruth? Well, it's difficult to understand exactly what this name Ruth might mean. Oftentimes when people are trying to understand the etymology of a name, they have to make some leaps in logic. Sometimes people want to put an extra consonant in root, which is the Hebrew. You could put an in there, which would mean... It has something to do with friendship or an aleph in there, which can mean something about seeing or something like that. The one who is seen, maybe. So some people will do that in order to come up with an etymology for the name. But it's very Mm -hmm. difficult to come up with a clear etymology. When I was doing my PhD, as they always say, be suspicious of the dictionary, because people do have to make presuppositions even when they are writing the dictionary, even when they're giving you a meaning of the word, there are leaps in logic they have to make. I think that both of those etymologies of this word have some validity to them, but I think that this one's much more difficult to tell than say Elimelech, which is very clear, my God is king. And Naomi which very clearly means my pleasantness, but Ruth and Orpah are much more difficult to etymologize.
0: You have the facts of the grammar, And when the facts of the grammar are inconclusive, your only other option is to do a word study. How is this term used in the text here or elsewhere? Now, in the case of Ruth, You pointed out to me earlier as a linguist that Ruth doesn't have a consonantal root, which is what makes it so challenging, especially challenging. But we have to assume as students of the Bible who are committed to the Bible as literature, we have to assume that the author who's been so purposeful about the choice of names potentially has a purpose in this name Ruth. So as we read through over the next four podcasts and try to understand what's going on in this text, I think we need to keep coming back to the question of what the best interpretation of Ruth's name should be based on the narrative. I agree. So they lived there about 10 years. Then both Mahlon and Kilian also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children
1: and her husband. They took Moabites as wives. This is a no-no. You're not supposed to marry Moabites. Israelites are not supposed to marry... Gentiles, because they might distract them, they might cause them to follow after other gods. This is what we read in the Torah. So in being married to these people, they're already on shaky ground.
0: Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. When her husband was alive, she was married to a man whose name proclaimed, God is my king. He left Bethlehem and she followed him into the wilderness. And then she heard that God, the same God, had moved back to Judah to bless the people. So she went back to Judah. So there's something special here about Naomi that she's just at ease. She has no difficulty whatsoever
1: going where God goes. This story always reminded me a little bit of Jacob and going down to Egypt where there was food and then afterwards they took their trip back to the land. In this way, Moab always sounds a little bit like Egypt to me. And unlike Jacob, they're bringing back Egyptians to come live in the land. They're bringing the enemy back to live in the land. So the question is what kind of havoc are these people going to raise? You know, like people are concerned about the refugees coming into Europe. How many terrorists are going to be hiding among those people? You know, we need to be suspicious of them. Do we need to be suspicious of Orpah and Ruth as they infiltrate the land of Israel as economic refugees looking for food? We'll have to see what happens.
0: And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Respect for the dead, and this becomes prominent in Roman culture, is foundation of piety. Because it's associated with elders, those who went before you. So you've shown respect to the dead. And you've shown respect to me, your elder. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept.
1: So this is Moabites caring for the Israelite widow in helping her travel back to her land, back to her people. They put themselves in potential danger, three women traveling by themselves, in order to make sure that their mother-in-law is taken care of.
0: And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? So here, Naomi is concerned about their economic well being. So Naomi is being correct, but it raises the question why can't they go back to Judah, which is supposedly governed by God's teaching, without fear of being abandoned? i think already judah is failing a test here why can't these moabite women be as welcomed and embraced in judah as naomi was embraced in moab it's unclear at this point whether naomi is endorsing the class system in judah that looks down upon the other from moab or whether she herself is powerless to overcome it But the point is, where her daughter showed hospitality to her in a strange land, her daughter's in law, she's not able to return the favor.
1: Right. What she's assuming is that, okay, you're young women, you have no children, you need to get married. You're a Moabite, I'm a Judahite, we find ourselves in Judah. You need to get married. You should not get married here or you cannot get married here. So you should go back to Moab so that you can have husbands. Whatever reason she has in her mind that a Moabite woman can't get married in Judah is motivating her to tell her daughters-in-law to leave.
0: But what's beautiful about this story comes in the next verse. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. Ruth and Orpah are not judging Naomi. They love her. And that's it. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods, return after your sister-in-law but Ruth said do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you for where you go I will go and where you lodge I will lodge your people shall be my people and your God my God wherever you die I will die and there I will be buried thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me so here Ruth doesn't judge Naomi understands that going back to Judah could result in her homelessness and abandonment. But she doesn't want to go back to the other gods, like her sister. She wants to remain faithful to Naomi, whom she loves. She's committed to this relationship, which is really important in the context of God's teaching. A relationship is not something you can transgress with or without a certificate. And she's willing to throw all caution to the wind and simply commit herself to the love of neighbor and to the love of God. This is the DNA of the New Testament.
1: It's important to recognize that here, Ruth is choosing to live outside of her land. She chooses to turn her back on her family in order to help this widow. She's willing to leave the place where she knows she's only lived in Moab up to this point. She leaves her land, she leaves her people for the sake of caring for a widow and even declares the Lord as her God in order to do so. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to
0: her. Because if Ruth is willing to take on all this risk, and if Ruth is pledging her life to the love of neighbor and to the service of the God of Elimelech, what can Naomi say? She's already said, I can't help you because I can't provide a husband for you. What more can she say? this is what a real relationship is this is what real neighboring looks like and this is what real community is so you have this powerful example in the relationship between these two women so they both went until they came to bethlehem and when they had come to bethlehem all the city was stirred because of them and the women said is this naomi she said to them do not call me naomi call me mara for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. So now her name is no longer pleasantness, it's bitterness. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned and with her Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab and they came
1: to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. So I'm going to argue with one translation here. I'm going to say it's not who returned from the land of Moab because she turned from the land of Moab. This is a play in Hebrew, Shuv, which is also used for repentance. It's also for loyalty. You turn to be loyal to somebody. So disloyalty, loyalty, it's all turning. Which direction are you facing? The Moabitess Ruth decided to turn towards the Lord, to turn towards Naomi, and to care for the widow in obedience to this new God, her Lord, the Lord of the Israelites. There's this
0: interesting inversion of geography because now Naomi is going back to Judah. You would think that she's blessed, but she's now entering into the land of Judah and she's bitter, she's cursed.
1: What is going on there? Why is she claiming that God has afflicted her? Because she lost her husband, she's lost her children, and she has nothing left. All she has is this daughter-in-law, a Moabitess in tow.
0: So we'll leave it there until next time. Thanks, Richard. We'll uh, look forward to our continued discussion of the Book of Ruth. Have a great week. Thank you, you
1: too, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature.